0: The faith is a feast. Our text this morning is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you'd open our eyes to what your word says, open our hearts to what your word says, and open our hands that we might do what your word says. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When my pastor in seminary had his 50th birthday, there was a big feast. The whole church showed up with all kinds of delicious food, and everyone brought a bottle of wine. We feasted, enjoyed a wonderful evening, and the wine did flow. Today we'll look at another feast, the wedding feast at Cana, but because they ran out of wine, the wedding feast was nearly derailed. But Jesus was there, and wherever Jesus goes in the Gospels, it's meals on wheels, and at the center of the New Covenant is a feast. This morning in the Gospel of John, we'll see epiphany, festivity, epiphany, festivity. Now, by way of reminder, we're in the season of epiphany. And remember, again, epiphany is drawn from the Greek word Epiphaneia. It means to reveal. So these texts reveal Jesus as Messiah, reveal Jesus as king of the nations. So epiphany, festivity, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. By the way, can you all hear me in the back? We had a little bit of a problem with the microphone last time. Okay, first one of John chapter 2. And it says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I want you to notice numbers in the scriptures because so often we just run over them like they're superfluous meanings. But God doesn't waste any bandwidth with his word. Third day, every time you see a third day or you see day three, kids, what do you think of for day three in the Bible? Any idea? Resurrection, right? Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. So when you see all the threes in the Bible, you're reminded of the fact that Jesus, Messiah is coming or has come and risen on the third day. Now it's the third day here, so there's a gap between John chapter one and chapter two. Remember that Jesus was just down at the River Jordan. He was being baptized at Bethany, east of the Jordan. So he was there on day one, being baptized in the voice of the Father from heaven, the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove. There's a day's travel between the Jordan and Cana, and now it's day three. Day three, and there's a wedding. Day three, and there's a wedding. Third day resurrection themes arise here, and who do we have here? We've got a wedding, but we've got Jesus, who's the ultimate bridegroom. This should be pointing us to the final resurrection. And do you remember how the final resurrection begins? It begins with a wedding feast at the end of this age. We've got a cast of characters here. We've got Jesus. We have Mary. We have the disciples, as you'll see in a moment. We've got wedding guests and servants. And interestingly, among those disciples who would have been there would have been Nathaniel. Nathanael, we're told in John chapter 21, was from Cana. Perhaps this is a family member of Nathanael who's having this wedding. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's a disaster. The wine's run out and the party's just getting started. Can you imagine what would have happened last night at the installation party if at the very beginning they said, oh, uh, half of you guys get a glass of wine or beer. We've completely run out of wine and beer. It would be a problem. But how much more so at a wedding reception? So Mary told Jesus. She knew who Jesus was. Think of all the catalog of the miraculous events that had happened in the life of Christ that also happened in the presence of Mary that she also participated in. Mary gave birth. Upon the announcement of the angels that she's going to give birth as a virgin, that the Spirit is going to actually cause this child to be conceived, she gave birth as a virgin to Jesus. The magi come and visit in Jesus' infancy. And there's more to this if you think about it. It's not just wise men coming and bringing presents to Jesus. It's an epiphany. Why? The representatives of kings of the East. So we see that she would have remembered that people in the wider world were aware that her son, Jesus, was king of the nations. At the age of 12, Jesus was lost for three days, and he was found in the temple sitting among the teachers of Israel, conversing with experts of the law. And just recently, three days before Jesus has been baptized, there were witnesses of what happened. A voice from heaven came, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We see that the spirit came down in the form of a dove, and now Jesus is at this feast. The wines run out, and Mary tells her son they have no wine. Now Jesus responds this way. In the Greek, he says, TMOi, Kai su gunai. gunai, it comes from gune means woman." Literally, he's saying this: "What's this to me and you, woman?" Or, to put it more colloquially, he's saying, "What's this to us?" They ran out of wine. What, what is this to us?" My hour for open manifestation says Jesus as Messiah has not yet arrived. Let's see what happens. Verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You see, Mary knows that Jesus is Messiah. She knows that he's capable of performing a miracle. She's sure her son's gonna do something about the situation. It's a disaster at a wedding, but it's not the end of the world. You see friends, Jesus cares about little details in our lives and mary knows this verse six now there were six stone water jars there for the jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons jesus said to the servants fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim we got six jars here what's up with that kids what do you think the six jars are about why why is there six Well, first of all, I want you to think about numbers in the Bible. Seven represents completion, right? Something's going to happen on the seventh day. And then we got something new that's going to come on the eighth day or the first day, right? When you've got sixes, you should always be thinking in terms of anticipation. What's about to happen next? A seven's coming. Something's coming to completion. And here we have six stone jars, six jars. Man-sized stone jars. We have examples of these from archaeologists. They're kind of oblong. They're about this high, like the size of a man. They would have some sort of spigot on the bottom, or you could have a dipper on the top. They're filled with water. They're old covenant purification water jars. You're washing your hands off all the time in the first century in Israel. People are coming to the feast, and they're washing their hands coming into the feast, they're washing their hands in the midst of the feast, apparently the water has gotten a little low, so Jesus says, hey, fill these up to the brim with water. Six man-sized stone jars. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Do you know there's likely six disciples here at this point with Jesus? Let's go through this. John chapter 1, verse 35 says there were two disciples with John the Baptist. One of them is named, that's Andrew. The other, most Bible scholars assume, is John. These guys both have brothers. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 41, speaking of Andrew, it says, He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. This is Simon Peter. Peter, right? We know that if John was there, who's John going to bring with him? He's going to bring his brother what? James. John and James. Theologians Jacob van Bruggen and Bishop Charles Ellicott argue that Andrew was the first to find his brother, and John did too, and his brother's name was James. So we've got four disciples. Remember, Jesus found... Philip and Philip found Nathanael. Six man sized stone jars at this feast filled with ceremonial washing water. And what do we have here? We've got Andrew, Simon Peter, we've got John, we've got James, we've got Philip, we've got Nathanael. We've got six disciples. Six disciples and six man sized jars filled with water. And the jars are filled to the brim with water. What's Jesus going to do? Let's go on here to verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Isn't this amazing? Jesus' confidence in his miraculous sign allows him not to even inspect the jars. Jesus doesn't touch the jars. Jesus doesn't speak to the jars. Jesus doesn't pray over the jars. He simply says, take some out and go take it to the master of the feast jars with water for washing hands are drawn to take to the master of the feast and they go i think it's night time i think they filled these jars up now and they they dipped some off and as they're walking along i'm sure they wondered wouldn't you the servants probably smelled it and looked at it and they're like whoa what happened to this something's happened here something amazing has occurred verse nine in the first part When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, Old Covenant purification water in stone jars. Old Covenant purification water in stones. Old Covenant purification water in a rock. Sound familiar? When the people of God were wandering in the wilderness after they'd been brought out of their slavery in Egypt. Remember, they ate bread from heaven. Wafers that tasted like honey came down from heaven and they drank water. Water from where? Water from the rock. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're told the rock was Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, when the people of God haven't come into the land yet, they're like little infants. You ever notice how they act like babies? They're always complaining all the time, right? God, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness. Why don't you give us something to drink? You're not going to take care of us. So he gives them water from the rock. They eat water and bread just like babies do. But when you come into the land, when the kingdom arrives on the scene, when the king comes, you sit down and you drink wine. Because think about what wine is. Wine is maturity. Wine is grapes turned into juice that has now been matured. It's a drink of kings and queens. And what do we have here? We've got wine from the rock from Jesus. And by the way, it's wine. It's oinos. That's the word there. It means a fermented grape juice. It's actual wine. I was in a class on John back at Liberty University some 40 years ago. And every time the word wine came up, the professor would say grape juice. It's like, sorry, it ain't grape juice. Trucks is grape juice in Greek. This is oinos, it means wine. So, imagine for a, a second this type of situation in our context today. You go to an outdoor wedding feast, right? And they've got those outdoor portable washing stations. And someone says, hey, go fill up a glass of water from one of those outdoor filling stations and take it to the caterer. And you would think, this is crazy. But by the time it gets to the caterer, something's happened. The lowest ranking people at the feast, the servants, are the ones who are in on what's happening and something's happened. Second part of verse 9. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Well, guess what, friends? I want to tell you something. Jesus likes wine. Jesus likes wine. Jesus makes wine. Jesus makes wine in a way that will bother temper, temperance-minded Christians and teetotalers through the centuries. Jesus drinks wine. Notice what the master says here. The master of the feast said to the bridegroom, first the good wine. First the good wine. And then he says this. In the Greek it says this. Kai mesthous thosin. Mesthous thosin. So it's literally like this. First, the good wine, and when they have become drunk or drunken freely, then the cheap stuff, you've saved the best for the last. What do we do with this? this some hard stuff to work your way through, is it not? Now, mind you, the master of the feast is probably a very worldly person. He's, he's doing these types of feasts. He, he oftentimes would probably speak in overblown terms. But what does the Word of God say about wine? It says wine makes the heart glad, but it also says wine is a mocker. How are we to approach wine like kings and queens, like sons and daughters of the living God with maturity? We're not to be drunk. We're not to be drunk. But it seems that Jesus makes and serves wine and leaves the discipline to the drinker. You see, we've got a lot of different issues or intrusions of issues on the drinking of wine in our time. We've got a road out here with automobiles on it, right? You've got to think about stuff like that. You've got to act in a mature way with these things. It'd probably be hard to get into head-on collision in the first century when you're riding on two donkeys. So we're not to be drunk, but Jesus leaves the discipline to the drinker. And notice that Jesus acts as the master of the feast, and Jesus here is acting as the bridegroom. The bridegroom would have provided the resources for the feast. The master of the feast would have facilitated this, and Jesus acts as both. He acts as the master of the feast, He acts as the bridegroom, and when we look at the amount of wine produced here, it's about 1,000 bottles of wine. I bet it was the best wine that's ever been made, this side of the resurrection. Who likes to drink wine here? I know some of you do. Can you imagine what that wine would Think about the, the best glass of wine you've ever had in your life. And this professional guy tastes it, and he's like, whoa, this is good stuff. You bet it is. Jesus made it. Jesus made wine. It's the best wine that anybody's going to be tasting this side of the resurrection. But guess what, friends? You are the Christians, the people of God. We're going to be at that feast. Jesus is going to be overseeing that feast as well. And we're honored guests at that feast. Going on to verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The first miracle is about wine, but it isn't only about wine. Six stone jars, six man-sized stone jars, six disciples, six men of God. When God is blessing his people, the wine overflows. Think about the symbolism of it. God makes great wine that's overflowing. He filled those jars to the top with water, and it turned into wine. I believe these correspond to the disciples. They're filled with the wine of God. They're filled with the spirit of God, and it's overflowing. You see, friends, in the Bible, the coming of the kingdom is marked by the sign of the wine overflowing. Joel chapter 2, verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. The kingdom's arrived. Guess what, friends? Hasn't left. We're in the middle of it. The kingdom is being poured out in this age between the first and final advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples of God's people into the future, and that is you and I will be filled with the festive wine of the new covenant in the spirit of God. The new covenant comes as a stupendously overflowing wedding feast that will extend across this age into the next age in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? Southern Californians, often don't RSVP to events. And this creates problems. I hope we don't do that down here in Texas. I actually think it's a good Christian character trait to RSVP to events. When my wife and I were married, a large number of people who did not RSVP showed up for the wedding. The cake that our baker had made was for 125 people, but over 200 people showed up. And this was a disaster that those who attended the wedding feast remembered for many years later. Unlike our wedding feast, the problem of scarcity was no problem at all for the Son of God. When the wine ran out, Jesus simply made more, pointing forward to this kingdom age, where the feasting begins and to the end of this age, which begins with the marriage feast of the Lamb. A feast that kicks off the age to come, where the feasting never ends. So I want to tell you, go forth from this place this Sunday morning and feast with the people of God. Knowing that your monarch, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, loves festivity and providing feasts for his people. This morning, we've seen in the Gospel of John, Epiphany, festivity. Sulle deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us and we come with thanksgiving that in the Lord Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, come into the world in flesh, loves feasts and provides feasts for his people. May we feast this day. May we feast in the knowledge of the resurrection and the epiphany of the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah of the nations. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.